Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I wanted actually to thank people in Ireland for becoming great listeners of the show. I try to track the numbers as much as I can about where our show is listened to the most, where the numbers are going up and down, just based on interest and based on the content of the shows. And whenever the numbers go up, it always makes me wonder why that might be and what about the show or the episode spoke to people in a particular part of our world. So if you are listening in Ireland, feel free to shoot us an email and let us know what's resonating about it for you. You can email us at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for today, we have Jeremy Sherman. He has a PhD and is a cradle-to-grave science researcher, as he puts it. He's the author of the Columbia University Press book, Neither Ghost Nor Machine, The Emergence and Nature of Selves, but also 1,000 articles for Psychology Today on everyday practicalities. For 25 years, he has been a close research collaborator with Harvard-Berkeley neuroscientist Terence Deacon. His latest book is called What's Up with Assholes? Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners. Sherman's all about making advanced ideas intuitive, practical, and funny. I really look forward to having you here, Jeremy, today. He is a smart guy. He has a lot to share. He's a wordsmith, and he thinks about things in unique ways. Here's Jeremy now. I'm so excited to have Jeremy Sherman with me today. I found it to be serendipity. I was doing some research actually for a podcast episode and was looking up particular ideas, came across an article that you had written. And just as you described things, I thought, this is someone I feel... I have a lot to relate to, relate with, just the, the way you describe some of the things that you were describing. I mean, the, just the terminology, the, the way you looked at it. And so I decided to reach out to you to see if you wanted to be on the show. And it turns out that we have crossed paths without realizing it with same organizations. And um, we probably know a lot of the same people. We haven't had a chance to talk yet. So we're kind of meeting each other and talking and exploring things for the first time. So thank you for being a part of this show today. It's a pleasure to be a part of this show today. I'm glad to meet you. Really glad to get to know you. Yeah, it's really nice. Really nice. So what I would love for you to do is just to spend a a few moments just describing who you are, what you do, a little bit of your background, and also what's brought you to, you know, having an interest in these sorts of subjects. My life has been lucky and wonderful and unusual, I would say, in some ways. I guess I should start by saying some of what I do now. I call myself a cradle-to-grave researcher. About half my time is spent on a fundamental question that is uh, overlooked or sidestepped in the life and social sciences. So I work half-time. 
I would say, uh, with a Harvard-Berkeley neuroscientist who I've been close collaborator with for 25 years on the origins of life. That is how you would have a chemical system that would get into the business of struggling for its own existence. So that's the cradle side of my research agenda. The grave side uh, has been with me longer. It's uh, paying attention to the grave situation, the predicaments we're in. I'm not pessimistic about us. I'm analytic about what we are, and I don't want to mince words about what we are and, and how how we are in a grave situation. But it, my my energy for exploring how best to deal with the human condition, especially these days, my eagerness to, to work with those questions has been with me a long time. In fact, my first whole career was as an environmental activist. And here's a touchstone to our work in common is that I lived for seven years on the world's largest eco-village hippie commune, a 1,400-member commune in Tennessee called The Farm, where I was an elected elder at 24. I was so enthusiastic about our work. So my whole first career was that, and then founding an environmental organization with 75 chapters around the United States, and then taking a master's in public policy at Berkeley, where I kind of sobered up on the challenge of how to improve things for humankind. And in a way, I've circled back around to that work. So I took my public policy degree, almost capping a career in activism, then got interested in evolutionary psychology, then got interested in complexity theory, then got interested in these much more fundamental questions, which is, what are we? And then have circled back around to that, to where another big chunk of my work these days is what I call psychoproctology, which is a light name for a very serious subject, which is trying to understand what's going on with a-holes. Basically, a scientific approach to the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of a-holery, which, and a-hole is an interesting word. I don't, I don't like it. I use it because it is probably the most common word in folk psychology these days. And I think it covers a broader range of human behaviors than is encompassed by any of the clinical diagnostic terms like narcissism, sociopath, psychopath, dark triad, all of that. And I approach that work from the perspective of my origins of life research. That is, I have a sense of what organisms are trying to do, how radically different humans are under the influence of language. So this research colleague of mine, Terence Deacon, when I first met him, he had spent 20 years working on explaining the evolution and nature of language. He wrote a, a magisterial book called The Symbolic Species and basically turned me onto the question of what it's like to be trying to adapt to reality under the disorienting influence of language. So that's kind of an overview. Cradle to grave, origins of life through our the, what, what made humans such an unusual species and then all the way out to psychoproctology which has to be a light, there's nothing more dangerous than claiming to be an expert on who's a cultist or an asshole. And yet I think you really need to engage in that work. So I call it a fruitful exercise in futility to be really trying to be careful in pursuing an objective definition of this behavior that manifests in many forms, branded to many different causes, and yet is uh, unsustainable. Wow. You've done a lot and you have a lot of interest. What I want to be able to find out about at some point is if you feel that there are more 
people who need a proctologist today than before, or if it's just that everyone at some point does, and there's something about the environment and culture that is promoting that part of people to emerge more fully, you know, so maybe we can start there because that's been on my mind. And then I want to come back to some of the things that you've talked about. So my fundamental question getting into psychoproctology 25 years ago is what is a butthead since it can't just be whomever I or you happen to butt heads with. I was looking for an objective definition of this and my intuition was that cult is the plural of asshole. Just as there are gaggles of geese, that is, that would be the definition. But as you're doing, it's like some kind of mass movement in which everyone basically gets to play God. So I just published a book called What's Up With Assholes, How to Spot and Stop Them Without Becoming One. And I spend the first 200 pages dealing with this definitional question. And this is where the origins approach I take comes in handy. The assumption in the sciences is that the lower level sciences should explain what the higher level sciences assume. That's that's how you would get integration across the sciences. So for me, the interesting question was, how would you explain the emergence or origins or evolution of a capacity to basically play God? My replacement term for a-hole is Trump bot. And it is not about Donald Trump, though I think he's a quintessential Trump bot. It's something you can do for any cause at all. You robotically play trumped up Trump cards. The term Trump is a double entendre. It means fake or BS, as in trumped up. And it also means invincible. Nothing can beat it. And I think of this behavior as a form of playing God, it's it's a robotic behavior. It's something you could slip into without even noticing that you have. And I think that it's something unique to humans. It's a function of us having language. As well, there are lots of predators and parasites in the biological realm. Being a Trump bot or an a-hole or a cult member is a human thing. It would be something that only humans could do because you need language for it. And language generates a couple of interesting features in us. One is it makes us an uncommonly anxious organism. When you compare what a dog, the variety of things a dog could worry about before falling asleep to what a human could worry about, all the real and imaginary threats and missed opportunities we can conjure up conceptually because we have language. And language also makes us an uncommonly denialist species. That is, we can talk our way out of any number of threats. What I'm saying is a long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's rife in the in human condition that we would have this cultish capacity. And that, of course, we're going through an epidemic of it right now, I would say. That is, cults and counter-cults, because they often form together. Uh, an example would be communism and libertarianism both of them taken as fundamental cults, or Catholicism and Protestantism, or any of these cult and counter-cults where they define themselves. They're obsessed with brand as if the brand makes a difference. I think the branding is irrelevant. I am profoundly nonpartisan in my approach to cultism because it's always the same BS, just different branding. Yes, but there's a lot of reasons why it would be up right now, why we'd be seeing a whole lot more cultish behavior the anxieties are up, and the offerings of ways to dismiss them are way up. Though we are language-using species, I think we are primarily 
driven by feelings. And so if we find ourselves cornered or anxious or filled with doubts and we stumble upon a way to alleviate that doubt, we will not forget it. It will become a habit. And that's the robotic part of, of this behavior. So once again, it, the words that someone says when they're engaged in dismissing, invinci- in playing invincible, and basically in playing God, whether secularly or not, whether they're playing when they're playing God, the words lose their reference. They are bleached of their meaning. All they mean is this word sounds hella good, therefore I assign it to me. Anybody who disagrees with me, I assign a word that sounds hella bad. I don't have to bother to define them. I'm not paying attention to that. All I'm doing is playing invincible. Just a habit. It's a kind of braying, actually. It's an animal braying that would take the form of language in us. There are a lot of people out there saying a lot of things. I know from talking to people who said a lot of things, and in retrospect, really wondered why they said those things and if they meant them, but they knew they were supposed to. And that was the way for them to be part of that community. Or, you know, it happens also in in cultic groups that the phraseology doesn't make sense. We could talk about language a lot with cults and how certain language impacts us physiologically in different ways. And that's why some words are used for other words like around the time of Heaven's Gate when there was a video that was done, none of them talked about death and they all talked about going to the mothership or leaving their corporal bodies. And so there wasn't that sort of natural response that you'd get uh, that would alert you that something is going to be happening that might be really dangerous to you because the language was all shifted. But I do think that for some people, they feel like the more esoteric the language is, the deeper it is, the more meaningful it is, the less they understand it really, the more they think it's at a higher level, you know, which is I've I've found so interesting. And people will spend years trying to decipher, well, it's like Q, they'll try to trying to decipher what uh, they're presented with. And they can't, but they they're given that as a as a goal that they have to continue and they they almost have to see themselves first as less than and that's why they can't understand it and then they have to try harder to understand it so i feel like it sets people on a path that is such a diversion and so i'm curious about that so i coined the term cerebral placebo for this effect that is one of the placebo effects is to have a library of supposed knowledge that makes you a convincing and credible source on things even if you're still a student of it i do think of it as a kind of a purgatory that people will enter into with a by, by purgatory i mean you're destined for heaven you'll get this from all sorts I know I'm trying, I know I'm not perfect yet, but I am on the right path, I have found the right path, it will destine me for this heavenly state, and that's comfort enough, that's freedom from doubt, because I've found the path. And of course, what's going on across all of this, anytime there's a deference to a god or a demagogue, you're humbling yourself before an imaginary friend so that you can lord it over others. That would be standard across all of this stuff. Obviously, you can... I have to distinguish. I don't think that I'm going to call them Trump bots because I, that is my term for it. It means cult member or it means an a hole or something like that. I think it's what we're really trying to get at. There are Trump bots who don't have a cause, who don't have a brand. They just do it independently, moment by moment. But here we're mostly talking about people who do it because they have branded it to, or associated it with some system 
that will enable them to be free from doubt. So we're we're paying attention to that particular kind. Um, and also for me, it's very important to broaden the definition beyond the heaven's gates like cults. They're great places to be studying this behavior, but you also you get mass movements. I would say by far the most woke movement in the United States right now is MAGA. And I get a whole lot of flack for it because it seems so unfair to hold a universal standard and claim that some people have decidedly not met it. You know, I happen to be a progressive, but I don't actually think that's affecting this that much. You get to be the judge of whether it's biasing my analysis. But one of the standard things that all cult seems to do is play the persecution side of things whenever anybody challenges them. Now, we're talking about a bunch of robotic formulas, incredibly simple to learn, way simpler than anything. It's so much easier to play God than be human. If you get a, if you can get away with, it. or play God or his uh, or his supplicating minion, that is uh, name dropping God, whether it's a secular God or not, that is any of those moves you can make. It's so much easier. The the toolkit you need in order to play God is really easy. Anybody can learn it, which is why a lot of my work is on how to keep people from getting away with it. That's a whole other half of this work. Is what is the right approach for? both treating Trump botting, how you treat it, how you respond to it, and also preventing it. A lot of my work is on prevention as well. How do you keep people from becoming this? And actually, a whole lot of it has to do with what I'll call optimal illusion. That is, I think humans need to play God. I do not think we could possibly live being realistic all the time. Our brains would fry. So for me, fundamental to prevention is finding safe forms of escapism. To take your flights of fancy with a return ticket to reality secure in your heart pocket. And I've been to Trump rallies and I've been to death metal concerts or their equivalent. They're exactly the same in that they both are, people get get cosplay, they dress up, they engage in what I call we glee, the glee of being us as compared to those losers out there. They chant the lyrics to things they're not paying attention to, but they love them because they sound badass. The only difference between a death metal concert and a Trump rally is that at the end of the death metal concert, people return to their cars and go back to reality. Whereas when people go to a Trump rally, they come home thinking that they've seen something more real than reality. Huge difference, huge difference. I think masturbation is way more virtuous than any of these other flights of fancy one might take. Cult rallies of any sort, you come home thinking you've you've seen something more real than reality. It's a big difference to me. So I I encourage safe escapism. Not how far out you go, it's about whether you return to whether you remember to come back to Earth. <laughs> right. So right now, in my practice, I'd say a good 40 to 50% of the people I'm working with are people who have loved ones who are saying, I see what's real, you don't. And there's no place for us to talk about this. It just is. And why do you not see it? And what's wrong with you that you don't see what I see? And so this idea that people are not only seeing what they think is more real than real, but that they're immune to evidence to the contrary is really interesting to me because no matter how much evidence you show, it's not going to make a difference. And so the part about people seeing what they think is more real than real, what is promoting that? What does promote that? And why is it that then there is sort of this, not only just an allergy to being shown facts, but a hostility about it? Right. Well, immunity one way or another to counter arguments. So 
I don't think people generally join any of these movements for the cause. I think it's a visceral response, which is they see the promise of alleviation of all doubt. Doubt is a very uncomfortable feeling. And if you get enough of it, you also are at risk of self-doubt, which is doubt about whether you've got what it takes to deal with the doubts of everyday life. So if you happen upon something branded to whatever, with whatever ideology that feels like a alleviation of it, it will come across to you as an epiphany, the last epiphany you'll ever need. This was it. I am. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Now I call that I once was lost, but now I'm blind syndrome. They think they bought a truth, but they bought a cheap generic toolkit that enables them to dismiss all challenges to their authority. The kit can be as simple as this. I live in Berkeley where mindfulness became the buzzword for a while. This was back when I was dating. And I actually quit dating because I couldn't go, I could not go on a date that didn't include someone using the word mindful as a positive, as the as the as the positive term, and anything they didn't like was unmindful. And I would ask them to define mindful, and they couldn't. All they knew was that it was hella good. So you can do this with anything. Just think of how simple this is. You find a positive word like patriot, a negative word like traitor. You claim to be in favor. Uh, you claim to have embraced patriotism. You don't know what it means, but it sounds good. And then anybody who challenges you is challenging patriotism itself and is therefore a traitor. It's as simple as that. So that's the that's what I call spin dominance, which is you get to control the loaded terms and how they're used in a debate. So you basically have all these virtue and vice signals that you get to use. Think of it this way. Imagine if I went to go see a Marvel comic movie and I, I really felt like I identified with Iron Man in it. And he was now my name droppable friend. And I'm walking down the street and anybody who, after the, after the show, anybody who challenges me is challenging Iron Man. And it's my duty to fight them on behalf of Iron Man or Jesus Christ or Buddha or whomever. It doesn't matter. Or Donald Trump. And it also means immediately that they are on the side of Thanatos. I mean, it's just like you, you just have a vice word and a villain word. It's as simple as that. And the point of it has got nothing to do with beliefs. They don't even know what the word patriot or traitor mean, just like they didn't know what mindfulness meant. I mean, I, I asked, I, I dated a psychologist who was in the world of promoting mindfulness, could not get a straight definition, not, could not get an operational definition out of her. All she knew was that it was hella good. So that can happen with any word. Right. Yeah. I want to have it come full circle with that, but I love this idea of the last epiphany you'll ever need. I get asked a lot about why there is this hostility, why there's anger. And I've noticed it too, even though, you know, working with people, you know, having to deal with Scientology, which I have had to deal with for 30 years now and them harassing me and whatever that hostility, but they're doing it because they've been told to do it. They think it's saving the world that they harass people who do this work. So that's been super fun. But what I have noticed also, though, is with these cases that are more recent, that are political, that are about conspiratorial thinking, etc. I liken the anger 
to this response to you're going to be taking away the one thing that's anchoring me and that it triggers this fear. I, I give the example, I have a bit of a fear of heights. If I were in an airplane and someone said, oh, by the way, we're not going to be landing. We're going to just be opening the doors and you're going to be parachuting down. And someone pushed me towards the open door. I would, for the first time in my life, hurt someone to get away from the open door. It would trigger this hostility because I'd be so sure that I'm going to die. And I wonder if there's something so primal because of the information that's being fed that you need this or else, or else something horrible is going to happen to you. And that that is what brings out this. It feels almost like a, a lack of ability to even talk about it with any civility. What do you think? There was something you said in there that that I'd want to unpack a little bit, which is that they've been told that they can't live without it. I think it's more visceral than that. A lot of our work is on what you call synergenics, which is how you ever get holes from parts, how you get multicellularity, how you get societies, anything like that. And the current theories about that are limited. They don't actually explain how it happens. I think it happens by addiction. And I don't mean addiction necessarily in a bad way. I have I happen to adore my addictions. I've got some really good ones, including all of this work. I'm quite addicted to it. I'm grateful for it. But let me give you an example of addiction and how it works in biology. Humans and other primates have to get vitamin C from an external source. All other mammals make their own vitamin C. You don't have to give a cat vitamin C. So what happened was we got an external source of vitamin C three, 35 million years ago, when we ended up in trees and there was fruit already in a synergistic relationship with birds. So now we have, so we were able, we, they, scientists have tra tracked this, biologists have tracked this. We know exactly what genes enable other mammals to make their own vitamin C. We've got it, but it is eroded, it's de degraded to junk DNA. So what happened? We had two sources of vitamin C, our internal capacity make it, and the external source. We became reliant on the external source because it was readily available. We lost the capacity to produce it for ourselves and are now addicted to external sources. We do this all over the place. Why, why is it that today I have to go to the grocery store? My ancestors used to grow their own food. There became two ways to get food, so redundancy. When there's redundancy, there's what we call mask selection. That is, there's less pressure to maintain both ways. One of them, you can lose one of the ways. I'm no longer able to farm, but I'm addicted to grocery stores and all sorts of things that are related to how I get groceries, including having money, getting a, having a car, uh, having available grocery stores. I'm not addicted to a particular grocery store in this case. If one closed, I could go to a different one. But this thing about addiction and how it's a product of losing capacity to do for yourself. My colleague, Terrence Deacon, is writing a book called Falling Up About It. Falling, you, you, you lose a capacity. You can do this in a relationship too, a remote romantic relationship. You lose a capacity to do something for yourself because it's readily supplied by the other person, including self-affirmation. Well, now you apply this at the level of what's going on when you join a cult. You had doubts. You manage them with some effectiveness. Now there's a second way to manage them. Whatever branded ideology you subscribe to, and now you are addicted to it. So to drop out of it, it's like dropping out of an airplane. That is, you have self-elevated and gotten into the rush of elevating yourself to the level of the, to that high alt altitude. And no, it would be terrifying. It, it, the bottom would drop out if you considered any other alternatives. And not only that, 
Anger is one response, but there are a bunch of other responses. What you could say about all their responses is that they're they're melodramatic. That is, this is all existential. They're playing they're the role playing the role of a hero in a movie. It's standard. You know that ISIS members watch Hollywood movies and think that they're the heroes. It doesn't matter. You just wear the facade of whatever looks heroic, and you get over the question of whether you are stubborn or steadfast, loyal or a sucker. You know, you get over all those questions because you just simply opt for whichever is the more positive heroic version of that. And it can take all sorts of forms. There are there are real polite assholes. So they're not always angry. They can take any number of forms. But what one thing they always are is impervious, invincible. So this was probably the most interesting thing that came to me while I was writing this book, this book, What's Up With A-Holes, about the dark triad personality type. So, so this is Machiavellianism, sociopathy, and psychopathy. And I don't end up subscribing to the taxonomical approach to diagnosis. I'm not a DSM guy. I'm not a rubric guy. I find those interesting descriptions, but I'm much more interested in explaining than describing. So check this out. What I've got to explain at the origins of life from chemistry is selves, that is individuals, engaged in functional, fitted effort. None of those four concepts apply in the realm of physical science. There are no selves. Function means good or bad, good or bad for the organisms, given its struggle for its own existence. Fitted means wise about its environment, responsive to its environment, adapted to its environment, and effort, which means it's a particular kind of work. That is, uh, when a rock falls, it's not making effort, but when an organism does something, it's, it's effort. If you look at those four traits, selves, function, fittedness, effort, and you imagine them at their optimized, that is maximized, which a human can imagine having all of them ideal. What is function at its best? Omnificence, all good. What is fittedness? It's omniscience, all-knowing. You know everything about your environment. What is effort at its maximum? It's omnipotence. The one trait that we don't talk about much when it comes to God is pan-integrity. That is, God is one. So, for example, if you ask a theologian, can God build a mountain so big he can't move it? The answer is he wouldn't because he's got perfect integrity. Now, these map onto the dark triad shell game. So narcissism, because I'm a perfect saint, it is my duty to outsmart everybody else by any dirty trick I can muster. It's my moral obligation, thereby winning, proving that I'm all powerful and therefore all virtuous. So since I'm a saint, I should sin. Since I sin, I can win. Since I win, I'm a saint is basically the circle. It's a shell game. It's a shell game. And if you point out the shell game, all they have to do is say, the only thing they have to be consistent about is, no, it's not a shell game. I have perfect integrity. This is exactly what you would expect from an organism that can imagine the ultimate, the permanent state of freedom from the doubt all organisms deal with. That's what's going on, (laughs) from my perspective. So it's not just like a rubric with three bad traits. It's a shell game, is how I think about it. So interesting. And just like with shell games, I mean, they're engaging, (laughs) right? 
Well, no, that's right. That it's a good point I hadn't thought of before. What I had thought of before is the only way you can beat a shell game is by calling it a shell game. But it draws you in and it draws a crowd. That's right. And from the perspective of the person who had the epiphany, the supposed epiphany, they weren't getting the attention they wanted before, and now they're getting it, and they feel affirmed by that. That's part of the power, is that they have our attention. Uh, also why they're so melodramatic in opposite directions. So to pull off that shell game, you have to keep on denying what you uh, just claimed. So since I'm a saint, I should sin as an example of that. The cultists will often, the, the, the Trump cult is perfect this way. They will scorn you for not living up to moral standards and laugh at you for caring about moral standards. As they play punk and prude, they'll play parental pedant or petulant brat. They don't care. None of that matters to them. They'll just get you however you come at them, they'll get you. I think of them as exhibitionists. They sidle up as if for conversation. And when they've got your attention, they open their trench coat and show off their invincibility. And however you respond, they have a way to claim victory. So if you're disgusted, they'll call you a prude. If you uh, laugh at them, they'll say you're unkind. I get this from Trump supporters all the time. They'll put out incredibly vulgar memes. And then if I taunt them back, they'll say, hey, where's your civility? The only thing you have to be consistent about in this game is your claim that you are consistent. That's all. Nothing. You don't have to be consistent otherwise. You don't have to be actually consistent. You just simply have to say, I have integrity. You get to claim every virtue for yourself, every vice for your rivals. It's surprisingly easy. Any idiot can do it. Right. If you can tolerate yourself, right? If you can dismiss your conscience and just say, well, I'm just going to keep, you know, saying the thing that's going to redirect the focus on the other person. And then I can just walk away. I don't have to actually feel any kind of internal conflict at all because I know, I know the lines in this play. That's right. And so what's interesting about the shameless, the meta shamelessness in this world where you you're shameless about being shameless is conscience is no longer necessary. Think about this. The way that the vitamin C gene in us became junk DNA, you no longer need it. You're surviving and even thriving on an external source of affirmation that you're right. Just like we thrive on this external source of vitamin C and no longer need to produce our own vitamin C. But it's beyond that. Because actually, conscience is extremely cumbersome to this game. It would undermine your, your performative capacity to have a conscience. The last thing you want to do is second-guess yourself. So you're in the business now of second-guessing yourself. That is, what you know, yes, I checked with myself, and yes, I agree with myself, and yes, I'm right, and yes, I'm right. So second-guessing is the enemy of this. You know, being self-conscious is exactly what you got rid of when you joined this thing. There's no reason you'd ever want it back any more than you'd want to jump out of that plane. That's so interesting. Second guessing, having a conscience, being worried. I mean, these are the things, you know, that give us heart issues, wrinkles, whatever else, gray hair. They're extremely cumbersome. A conscience is extremely costly. Ties your hands in all sorts of ways. We have to admit this. We have to stop saying, just choose to have a conscience. It's really hard to maintain one. When you ask kids to share they get less. <laughs> so if you look around and you see a bunch of other people who are proudly shedding their consciences and you can align with them, you just bury yourself in the pack. It's completely safe for you. You have, you have your reference points. That's why they would grow exponentially, these cults, up to a point. 
What's so interesting as you're talking is that when I work with people who have been in relationships with uh, people with narcissistic traits, when I work with people who've been in cults, when I work with people who've left political movements, they will often talk about how they realized after a while that the person they were with or the person they were following was five, six, seven steps ahead of them, that they were still trying to make sense of the thing that they were told that was the opposite of what they were told the day before. They're still trying to make sense, right, about how someone who they're looking up to or someone who they're partnered with could do the thing that they really did. And it must be that someone got that wrong because when you are driven by your conscience, we we assume that what's true for us is true for other people. And so the people who don't have that same guideline, I, I think it truly confuses people, baffles people. And then on top of it, you have a lot of people for whom there isn't justice, where they get away with it over and over and over again. That's a very frustrating thing for people who are still determined to have a conscience and also have a sense that there should be some justice. And you see people really wringing their hands and being incredibly frustrated while other people are off dancing and haven't worried for a moment. And it's fascinating to me. I can see sometimes when people come into my office, when uh, someone will call and say, I, I, I feel like I'm with someone sort of narcissistic in their coldness and the, like they don't have the capacity to feel in the way that I feel. And I can sometimes tell when they first walk into the office because one looks very well rested and put together, they took time to take care of themselves. And the other looks haggard and confused and beaten down. And they didn't have time to eat breakfast because they're still trying to figure out their lives or get past the fact that they were just insulted. And they're not sure where that came from because they didn't know that they were getting attacked back for some narcissistic injury that they caused inadvertently. And so you can see it even in their personas that some people just glide through life. I still, even though it's easier, I don't want to be one of those people, but I could see that it's a lot easier. Yes. So given my background, given who I grew up around, the, the counterculture, I have become hyper aware of a delusion that I was a solid member of for many years. We happen to live through a peculiarly comfortable time. I'm a baby boomer. I'm 65. So we happen to live through an unusually comfortable time in world history. And rounded up to love, kindness, tolerance, openness is the answer, not just for our local temporal culture, but for the world. An audacious thing to claim that if everybody would just be kind to each other, tolerant, receptive, all of that, on the count of three, if we all just did that, which would be true if everybody, if everybody did it. It doesn't work like that. And actually, this is a place where I credit true conservatives. We're not dealing with conservatives these days. This is a different thing. This is a fascist cult, but I would say. But a true conservative who looks at the counterculture and says, no, I came to World War II. I don't believe that. I don't think that's credible, that love is always the answer. So I still have many friends who will shame me for shaming, who express gross intolerance. They say be intolerant of intolerance without noticing that's a dilemma. So for me, whenever I notice any of these, any of the moral principles that we we sport, do not be negative, you shouldn't be judgmental, be intolerant of intolerance, they're all actually dilemmas. They're fundamental dilemmas. They're not principles. They're The, the fact that they're self-negating 
doesn't mean you can be cynical about them, nor can you afford to be fundamentalist about them. They are dilemmas. I have to figure out when to shame, when not to shame. I've gotten into interesting debates lately around the term humiliate. So one way to think about my work, the practical side, the prevention or, or the treatment side of it is how to humbly humiliate people who will do anything to avoid humility. I'm multiple configurations of that fundamental puzzle that I think if we can't solve it, we won't survive as a species. Another one is how do you humbly humble robotic humiliators? But I have friends who simply assume that one should never humiliate anyone. So if you look up the term humiliate, it means basically to take someone down a notch, to reduce their self, their self-esteem. So if you've got a normal person and you try to strip away all of their self-esteem, that's tacky, at, at least, if not uh, villainous. But if you've got someone playing God and you try to reduce their self-esteem, that's a necessity. It's also a bind because a lot of the people who entered this enter it because they have low self-esteem. I wouldn't say everybody who becomes a cultist is one of those. There is a theory that everybody's got a chip on the shoulder. No, I think you can enter. There are many detours into assholia. It's an easy path to take for any of us. Any path you're on has detours to assholia, et cetera. But, but still, you are. this is a sympathy for the devil challenge, which is this is someone who's got a low self-esteem, who's compensating for it by pretending they've got the ultimate self-esteem. It's interesting how often people leapfrog over normalcy. So if you're really anxious, you dream of enlightenment. If you're really destitute, you dream of heaven. You don't dream of becoming normal. You become the dream of becoming the super rich. Obviously, the, the pain is so great, you'd like to alleviate it forever. But nonetheless, I do think that we need to recognize that the behavior that is absolutely necessary and appropriate and appropriate with some people is the absolute inverse of what you should do with other people. So that means, and, and when you're in a relationship, the whole idea of getting into a relationship is that you can trust this person enough to be open, tolerant, loving, kind, respectful, forgiving. It is a very tricky thing. It'll take decades sometimes to realize that when they say words at you, when they bray words at you, the last thing you want to do is parse what those words mean. The words don't mean anything. It's braying. So if you're sitting there trying to figure out how to talk, to, how to understand them, there are some people you can bring around by actually posing questions or asking, you know, signaling reasonableness, and maybe they'll melt back into reasonableness. But there are other people that the more you do that, the more you're a sucker in their game. And, the, and you can see how the current cult, the biggest cult around, I mean, lots of cults, but the MAGA cult is just playing on that above all. They own the libs by getting the libs tripped up on the morality, on the moral scold. I mean, I get this all the time with the Trump supporters. The, the amount of pedantry I get from them preaching about being civilized or polite or kind or any of this, they don't care about that. You watch their behavior, they don't care about it at all. You, behavior is how you would know what they really care about. They don't care about it. They care about its ability to sucker you into concern about whether you're, you know, if you've got a conscience and they don't, that's an advantage. Mm. When people will let me know about, let's say, a, a group that they've gotten involved with or a guru that they have, I'll sometimes go to check it out to see. Or I'll say, you know, would you mind having this person involved in a conversation with me so I can watch this happening? And 
there's usually this real gift of gab. I mean, just a wall of words. Just here, I'm going to throw all these things. That you, there's this impression very often of it being uh, important and that it's monumental and that it's life-changing and it's really nothing. And so what I have found, and this isn't just uh, about sort of political rallies. I mean, this can happen when people say, you know, I have a, whatever it is, a spiritual coach who, you know, I want you to be able to talk to because I feel like I'm, they're not really, you know, treating me right, but they, they've convinced me that they are. And can you talk to them? What I've sort of come to with that is to guide people not to hear the words, but to notice the actions, like you're saying, that matters how that person treats you or what happens there to you, but also to notice what they don't say, not what they do say. So if you're expecting, let's say, for someone to apologize because they really hurt you, they can talk forever without ever saying, I'm sorry. You might think they said it because they talked for four hours. They might even say it with uh, compassionate prosody. That is, they can use a compassionate tone they could Mike Pence a non-apology at you. Exactly. And it and I'll say, you know, and if you can close your eyes, because they're going to look into your eyes. And if you can ignore the tone, the soft, the softness and the caring in the tone and just listen for certain words. And if after all of this time you haven't heard them, you'll never hear them because they don't feel them. <laughs> they don't care. It's it's a fascinating thing to see what's missing, not what you're getting, but what's missing in that. And also because it doesn't cause a change in behavior. That's a fundamental part of what's missing, it seems. So for me, it comes down to this thing about they'll do anything. They'll do and say anything to avoid humility. That is, invincibility is if everything they do makes them right and righteous primarily, if they never concede if they can't if they can't actively listen you and actually repeat what you said without distorting it in the process i mean there's a bunch of different tells for whether you're dealing with this kind of person and i do understand why we would want to simplify down to be never trust anybody or trust everyone either one because i consider it a fundamental serenity prayer in my work i have to be receptive to people who are receptive I have to be non-receptive and taunting to people who are non-receptive. You know, when I'm dealing with a commenter on one of my articles or someone who, on Twitter who I've engaged with, because I do a lot of experimenting there about how to engage with these people, I can make two mistakes. I can think someone's a troll when they're not, and I can think that they're not a troll when they are. It's, and it really makes a difference. You want to get it right. It's one of the fundamental adaptations. I need to be responsive to different conditions. So the tell is a really important thing. And yet what's fundamental to my work is that it's all guesswork. The struggle for existence is trying. We're trying. We are organisms trying. There is no formula. This was the hardest thing from Darwin's insight. Not that we descended from apes or that there's less of a role for God, but that there's no formula. Life is guesswork. So to me, the culture wars are really a battle between fake infallibilists, people who, who are playing as, a, as though they, they are infallible or invincible, all of that, and fallibilists, which is a term out of philosophy, I distill down to no matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. So I, my two tricks with, that I use with these people, with Trumpbots, is exposing the shell game, just relentlessly saying, look what you did again. You will say and do anything to feel 
vindicated, to feel like heroic. That's all you've got. You've got nothing else. That's all you've got. Whatever they do in response to that will affirm your point. So we used to call this tar babying. That is, no matter how much they fight it, it will stick to them. We no longer call it that. I call it gum babying. That was the original African term for it. Gum babying, you know, this, this shows up in the Uncle Remus stories, but it shows up way further back than that in African folklore. So your being defensive is the quintessential gum baby. Because whatever you say in response, will say, or it's not all about you, another classic gum baby. So I don't use gum babying with normal people. That's not a, a, it's a tacky thing to do. But you're dealing with these Trump bots. And all I do is, is say, that's what you're doing. I never pay any attention to their content. Their content is irrelevant. They'll try to snow job me with one of these long things, making me wrong about everything. I say, see what he did there? He did it again. He did it again. That's all he's got. He's a one-trick phony. That's all he's got. And then the other part of my the thing is fierce fallibilism. So I'll often be accused of being a name caller or anything, shame for shaming, that all of these things come up. And I say, of course I name call, like you, like everyone. You just called me a name caller. That's name calling. Okay. The difference is that you pretend you don't so that you can glorify while you're busy name calling. And I'm trying to figure out when the name call under what circumstances, I'm trying to name call where it helps, not where it harms. You haven't even begun to think about what name calling means. If I if I said you're a lovely lady, does, is that name calling? You haven't even begun to wonder about that. You're just got nothing. So this is how I deal therapeutically, you could say, with my hyperactive conscience from all of my years in activism, that is, I embrace this stuff. You cannot snag me anymore by calling me humiliated or shaming because I'm I'm grounded in a world where we're trying to figure out where to shame. And whereas you're just you're just pretending that you live by a rule that nobody can. So to me, there are really three positions. So take something like shame on anybody who shames. Take any one of those moral oxymorons. There are three main moves that can be made with them. One is fundamentalist hypocrisy, which is, well, be that as it may, you should never shame and shame on you for shaming. That is, you you claim to hold a clear line and be on the right side of it, and you just use hypocrisy you know, if someone claimed, well, I never shame. I say, well, 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 you just shame me for this. That wasn't shaming. And then they come up with some euphemistic way of describing it. So that would be the fundamentalist hypocrisy move. The cynical hypocrisy move would be shame on you for shaming. Ha ha, morality's bogus. There are no lines. I get to do whatever I want. And the one that I think is the healthy antidote to both of those is ironic fallibilism. Irony means that we will be making mistakes. Life is guesswork. We're trying to figure out what situation we're in. We're on a winding road that is not, there's no GPS for it, it's crowded. We're trying to avoid two kinds of errors. That is, there are lots of ironic situations built into physics itself. That is, you can guess right and it comes out wrong. You can guess wrong and it comes out right. You're trying to minimize both of those kinds of errors, but that's what we mean by irony. I did something good and it turned out bad. I did something bad and it turned out good would be standard examples. So the ironic stance would be a recognition of this, that life is dire. You can change the sails on your sailboat at the wrong time and drown. 
And it's also slapstick. That is, it is inherently, inescapably slapstick. Life is tragic comic. And I am trying to live it right. The best equanimity I can have as a person with a conscience is to be equally anxious about, for example, being too assertive or not assertive enough. If I'm equally anxious on opposite sides, that's about as close to equanimity as I'm going to get. It's very serious. And at the same time, it's a hoot. It's just a riot because there are all these the pitfalls, the, 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 the slapstick. The banana peels. Life is banana. There are banana peels. There's no escaping them. So that's my take. Title of your next book. <laughs> I, did, I did write an article when life gives you the banana peels. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's like the idea of no good deed goes unpunished. No good deed goes unpunished is on the edge of, it's inviting the cynical hypocrisy. It's all sore loser stuff. You know, I'm just like Jesus Christ. I'm being sacrificed on the cross. No good deed goes unpunished. Those are interesting dances. We have a lot of that stuff floating around. And yeah, I, I wouldn't want it to lead to cynical hypocrisy. And I and I noticed that in seeing myself do it. I was once accused by someone of name calling. And I noticed my first response was relief. Like, haha, you just called me a name caller. That's <laughs> and then a, a couple of months later, I thought, no, no, actually, that is not my response. My response is, no, I'm trying to figure out when to name call. Did I name call well? Did you name call well in name calling me? You know, that's a question. It is, right. But what you're talking about, too, and what you had was this, what they call the thought terminating cliche. Like you had your response. You didn't have to feel it. You didn't have to think it. You thought about it later, but you had your automatic. That's right. And yet I also want to say that that has been... Having thought terminating responses, I think this would be an accurate description. I'm just making this up on the spot. Gives me the grounding. I, about three months ago, I, I felt sudden relief. I knew actually my, my formula for dealing with the Trump cultists on Twitter. I now had my formula for dealing with them. I just described a bit of that. It's basically a combination of gumbay being, that is, look, look, look at this guy, all he will do is this, and fierce fallibilism which is if I ever did get to the point where I wanted to comment on some attack, I had to do that very carefully because, like I said, I'm not going to pay attention to their attacks. But if I decide to tease them about it, I'm going to say, yes, of course, I'm trying to figure out, I will make mistakes about when to shame, when not to shame. You don't seem to be paying any attention to that. that. Once I had that grounding, in a way, it is a kind of thought-terminating move. We can think about everything forever, and we don't want to improvise in all circumstances so to have my formula for dealing with the formulaic, I'm just making this up here, but I think, I think that's a useful thing to do. The last thing you want your clients to do is enter into these conversations improvising. They will not succeed. You need to go into it with a strategy, especially if it's someone that they're close to. Good Lord. I mean, you go into that, you've got all these other habits already formed in a relationship with a loved one who has gone turned towards a cult. You've created this whole relationship of listening and attending and caring and all of that. And suddenly they've turned on that. They're using it to their advantage. That is your vulnerability is now their asset. You do not want to enter that conversation improvising. You actually need some thought terminating. Open-mindedness is considered a virtue. I I am trying to be open-minded and closed-minded in the right places, not the wrong places. I do need my thought terminations. If I if if I went completely open-minded, I would not be able to function. I have to have op- working assumptions. I'm a fallibilist, which means that they could be overturned. But it's not like, yeah, I wouldn't want to pretend uh, that it wouldn't be costly for me to change my mind. Right, exactly. No, not at all. 
I mean, I think actually that that sort of speaks to how in some contexts and with some subjects, there is this idea that it is not okay to agree to disagree, that it either is right or wrong. And in other places, you can agree to disagree. And so there has been pushback, and rightfully so, when people are, t- are talking about things like racism. It's not okay to agree to disagree that one person, you know, is above another. Live and let live is a breeze as long as we don't have to live together. And when you are living together and making joint decisions, then you really have to make them. What I'm hyper aware of, and I think it's something your clients might also find interesting, is the potential for slipping into what I'll call infallibility death matches. It's winner takes all, loser loses all. It's the kind of thing that people can slip into really easily. Imagine if we were having a conversation and I said, what, you think the Beatles' White Album came out in 1970? You don't know anything, do you? You could say that impulsively, but then there are also situations in which someone is actually trying to cultivate an infallibility deathmatch. You're completely wrong, I'm completely right, or I'm completely wrong, you're completely right. Once you're in that, it's dumbed down to death. It, you, you're just not going to, you cannot think straight. And we're dealing with that right now in this country. We have we have one party that is completely devoted to the infallibility death match. And it makes it impossible to actually think. I mean, I miss true conservatives because they were able to engage in a degree of, de- of give and take that we're not hearing these days. I have broken up with partners who systematically could not apologize and it wasn't because it wasn't just because they wouldn't apologize for things they did it's because it invited an infallibility death match that would dumb me down that is if i'm going to be with someone who can't apologize i'm not in a position where i can afford to apologize if i say i could be wrong they'd say yeah you are that would be and i actually need the growth potential that you cannot have when you're dealing with someone who for whatever reason my partners were often people who were they naturally felt a need to hold their ground with me i'm i'm a noisy guy as is evident from this uh you know i, I say i'm glad that my lack of appetite has finally caught up with my lack of aptitude for partnership because i'm just too mouthy for it it's not that's <laughs> Not good for it. But anyway, for whatever reason, I couldn't be in a relationship with someone who can apologize because it's too conducive to me not apologizing. And I don't want a life like that. I actually need a life in which I can admit to my errors. I don't want to live in an infallibility death match. Interesting. So you like the challenge, to be challenged. What I am curious about is a couple of things that you mentioned. When you talked about the cerebral placebo and that you mentioned anxiety, and this is not to, you know, throw a wide net and diagnose a whole group, but do you feel that the people who are of certain beliefs or of certain leanings or who are really activated right now are ones who do deal more with anxiety, who can't tolerate the unknowns as well as others who don't have a positive or neutral even outlook about what could happen next. What do you think? What have you noticed about them just psychologically? Once you find a formula that makes you more comfortable, you will also, this is the I once was lost part of the equation, is you might actually end up making a bigger deal out of how lost you were before it. The more lost you were, likewise, the more lost anybody who disagrees with you is, the more anxious, so the more elevated in its value, whatever solution you found. I do think that we, 
I distinguish two kinds of study. One is a little closer to Aristotle's where he felt free to kick the tires on stuff and he's basically exposing himself to lots of different views. That's what you do in philosophy. You're basically shopping among interpretations and you know you're shopping and you're going to go for the best bet you can, but it won't be a certainty versus the kind of study where everything you're doing is everything you're reading closely is confirming of what you already believe. Right. The confirmation bias. Yeah. And by the way, there's a there's another important connection on confirmation bias. The two jobs for all organisms are, given that we live in a world where everything degenerates, this is the second law of thermodynamics, the two things that an organism would have to do to be even in an organism, to stay around, not reproduction. That's actually secondary. The first thing they, they have to be able to protect against degeneration and regenerate whatever degenerates they have to deal with what I'll call selective interaction. That is, they have to protect against all the kinds of energy sources. I'm talking about physical energy sources that would degenerate them. At the same time, they have to consume the right energy sources that they can use to regenerate themselves. So this is fundamental. This is 3.8 billion years of history. This has to be there from the start of life. Our origins of life model has this selective interactive capacity by chance, because it would have come about by accident. So basically what I'm talking about is organisms have to drink water, not bleach. They have to eat food, not toxins. Okay, they have to take in the energy they can use to regenerate themselves and keep out the energy that will degenerate them. What happens when you apply that at the level of language? You get confirmation bias. That's what it is. You take in the ideas that you can use to regenerate yourself and you keep out the ideas or you attack the ideas that could degenerate you. And so for me, confirmation bias is inherent. It's also where the thought-terminating ideas come in. I have confirmation bias. I'm actually grateful for it. But here's the difference. For me, confirmation bias is a problem I have to manage in myself. And for a Trump bot, confirmation bias is the solution to all their problems. It's the solution to all their problems. That's all that, That's all Trump botting is. That is, no matter what happens, if it disagrees, if it challenges me, I have to deflect, attack it, uh, you know, dispose of it somehow. If it affirms me, so they're self-winding. No matter how you shake them, they're confirmed. They're self-winding. They get wound up. Now, back to your question, are they more anxious by nature? I don't think so necessarily. That is, someone could slip from a happy-go-lucky life into Trumpism because it's an advantage, it's a, it's a relative advantage. I don't know. That doesn't mean that they had to go into it more anxious. But I will say that once they're addicted to it, it's not like everybody who's addicted to morphine was low on morphine when they got into it. But they'd be really low on morphine if they cold turkeyed off it. And I think that's the heart of it there. So interesting. So this really ties in with how so often controllers, manipulators, cult leaders will want to rewrite people's histories so that they really did need this or they were going to be in the gutter without this or no one has loved them up until now. So thank goodness they found finally this person who could love them. Right. In a way, the psychotherapeutic community does end up confirming that some. The, the whole notion that these were people who had uncommon chips on their shoulders, I'm saying ain't necessarily so. Sure, plenty of them were like that, but it's not necessarily that case. So if you really think, and I hadn't thought about it before right now, I really focused on the I once was lost. How much of a celebration there is 
how important it is to maintaining the sense that you are found, it is to think that you were lost. It's very much a kind of tying oneself to the mask kind of thing. And I have known a few people who did get lost. That is, they hit a midlife crisis, and they seem to get out of that hole. They scrap their way out of that hole, often by finding something that reassured them or gave them confidence. And now they have locked themselves to that thing because the last thing they want is to ever get near a hole like that again. I'm 65 now. I can no longer have a midlife crisis because I'm no longer midlife. But I did get, I got two macro and a few micros in there. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so there was something, and they were not fun, though they were edifying. I found that they, I learned some things. I don't know if I learned the right things. That's often the case. I once was lost, but now I'm blind. So <laughs> right. there's certainly that potential. I wouldn't put it past me. Mm-hmm. Right. I once was lost, now I'm lost somewhere else. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of that. That's right. Right. I mean, I, I do think also it's this idea too, we're going back to the opposites. That there are some people who need to be the victim. So in order for them to be the victim, you have to be a perpetrator or they can't be the victim, right? So they need to accuse you of things or interpret or misinterpret what you've done to them. Yeah, though, but especially interesting to me about this mindset is the quantity of toggling they'll do in it. So we talked about it on one dimension. That is on the level of power. Christ is the the victim we sympathize and identify with. We the persecution. Uh, the number of religions, I mean, my folks are Jewish, yours might be too. We romanticize our own persecution to some extent, I would say, at least in my version of the culture, there was plenty of that. The Mormons are all about that. I end up hanging out with a fundamentalist Latter-day uh, Saints and have read a fair amount about it. And there's a good, strong argument that the beliefs are really secondary to the amount of persecution that they can claim. So on the power one, we are both the king of kings. We will be vindicated. When we're winning, it it proves we are we were always right. When we're losing, it proves we were always right and we will be right again soon. That would be standard in it. But there is that on all the other dimensions as well, including omniscience. I know everything, and what I don't know is unknowable or irrelevant. Okay, so you get that one on that one. On the virtue side, I guess it's the no no deed too dirty for a saint like me, that kind of paradox. And on the integrity thing, you get this the same thing, which is, I mean, there are the fundamentalist hypocrites and the cynical hypocrites, but mostly you'll get a blend of the two, which is someone who will claim, like I said, that, that they'll claim that they are in, they are policing the world by moral standards and they're also they'll in the next breath they'll laugh at you for caring about moral standards that is the inconsistencies you are are part of the shell game you know it's reminding me of so many former cult members who talk about having felt superior than the rest of the world but feeling absolutely inferior within the group that they could never reach the level of the leader. So they always felt less than, and they were always trying to dig themselves out of a hole that was dug for them and they have to get their standing back and and they have to be perfect and there's no way to be perfect. So they always felt like they were looked down upon, but they were still above everyone else in the world. Yeah. You just gave me an idea about that. I hadn't thought of before. So I've been interested in the inclusive double standard, which is you think I'm ungenerous I think that my fellow cult member deserves more than you too. Meaning I am generous. I'm generous to my fellow cult member. I think there's a reverse in what I just heard that an inverse, which is also fascinating, which is you think I'm arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I think I'm less than the leader of my cults. 
I'm generous. I, I believe in forgiveness from members of my cult. So it looks like three-dimensional chess to outsiders. It's, you get really confused by it. And it's not. It's incredibly simple. It's amazing how complicated you can make life by pretending that it's much simpler than it really can be. That's what they're doing. And it is also three-dimensional chess in a, in a sense, in that we're all trying to pay attention, at least to some extent, to what's true. And they're playing on a completely different dimension. It's all just about, it's just about uh, elevation, relative elevation. The content is just window dressing. It's got nothing. It's lip service. It's braying. It doesn't mean anything to them. The only question is whether they win, and is, and which means that the, the mind turns to mush. There is no mind anymore. Here's one way I've thought about the sequence by which someone would join a cult, is that you're feeling anxiety. You find a doctrine that makes you feel confident. You shell yourself up in the doctrine, but the doctrine is porous. People outside will laugh at you for having embraced the doctrine. And so what you do is you shell yourself up in the generic tricks of cultism, and the doctrine falls away. Because the generic tricks are, they're hermetic. It's a hermetic hermeneutic. It's just whatever, whatever comes at you cannot get at you. You are invincible. You're incorrigible. You are literally uncorrectable. That's all that's left. It's why cults all look the same. They can have absolutely opposite beliefs. It doesn't have anything to do with the beliefs. All that's left, it's a generic rhetoric. Right. And it is true. I mean, I run this former cult member support group. And because I've worked with already thousands over the years, I've seen time and time again that they'll say, oh, we had that too. We just called it this. You know, like there's nothing new under the sun, but definitely nothing new in a cult. They also, the cult leaders learn from each other, but also there's a certain personality disorder that drives a certain kind of behavior. So things are going to look the same within a cult, the means of control, the inability to handle any kind of criticism or dissension, et cetera, et cetera. As we're finishing up, I'm really curious about just spending a moment, if we can, going back to something that you said at the beginning of our conversation. So when you said to discuss what is the right approach to prevent assholery, I guess you were talking about, and to treat it. Maybe let's end there because that's something that is really prescient for the listeners. The treatment is basically how do you deal with them? My goal is not to change their mind. That actually gives them more value than they deserve. It's enabling. I'm not going to reason with them. Well, once I've made a careful bet that I'm dealing with someone who's in this state, in this Trump botting practice, the robotic playing of Trumped up Trump cards, I'm not trying to reason with them. That would be dangerous. And I'm certainly not trying to change their mind. I'm trying to make it cost them. There's no hope of them dropping it as long as they're getting away with it. So I have to make it costly to them. So the two techniques, I mean, there's a there's variations on it in my book and in my videos and in my free articles. And and I and the book is cheap. I don't I don't need to make money off of it, but it's very accessible. It's also out as a free podcast. But the two techniques that I mentioned were gum babying, which is basically you only concentrate on the fact that they will say or do anything to feel heroic moment to moment, that they've got nothing beyond that. And you keep on exposing that, preferably to an audience, preferably to an audience that is not going to uh, intervene and say, hey, be nice, be polite. I get that a lot. But if you can keep on saying, see what he did there, you're simply exposing it and making it costly. So I will do that kind of shaming at them. That's gum babying. And whatever they come back with, you stick with the gum babying. You simply say, there, he did it again. This is all he's got. 
That's that one. And the other one is I will shame them for something sometimes in order to get them to try to attack me. And when they do, they find that I'm actually invulnerable to it. I said to one guy, I bet you, I bet you know, I bet I know what you're going to come back with. You're going to be snarky at me about how unkind I am. And the guy went Mike Pence on me. He went, no, I will, I, if I've ever been snarky to you, then I said, then allow me to snark, continue my snark at you. That is, I'm trying to show you, we all use these tools. You cannot lobotomize whole parts of human behavior. The question is to use them in the right place. So that's the fierce fallibilism. Trying to figure out when to use which technique. And then on the on the prevention side, that treatment, and I mean to keep it that simple. It's really got to be simple. We're dealing with people who are incredibly, they're using a simple formula. And then the second, uh, the, how you prevent it is, we all need self-love. Get a room. I don't go to church. I'm an atheist. But I do watch movies in which I pretend I'm the hero. I play music. I, I pretend I'm good. <laughs> you know, lots of people play video games. There's so many different ways to do this. We need entertainment. Entertainment is not an, an, an option. It's a necessity. Life is way too much for us humans. We must appreciate this difference between us and dogs. We are going to be a way more anxious species than any other, especially these days. And so to avoid what I'll call the, the delusional death spiral, which is you, or the dissociation death spiral, is basically reality gets tough. We start ignoring it and pretending that we're gods or whatever, neglecting reality, which gets tougher, and it's a death spiral. That would that if I were to guess at how human humanity flames out, it would be that. Actually, any languaged organism anywhere in the universe, any intelligent life form would be dealing with the same challenge we are. They would have made their world kind of complicated and messy, and they would be just as denialist as us. I'm quite confident that climate change has happened multiple times in the universe before, and climate change denial as well. With language, you get this capacity to imagine anything. We're more visionary and more delusional than any other creature. So we really need entertainment. It's not an option. We just need to do safe. It's optimal illusion. You got it. Safe escapism. Not a matter how far out you go. It's whether you remember to come back. So happy to have gotten to know you just even just a little bit about, you know, what you've studied, what you've put together. Where can people find your work? your books. I'll also put links in the bylines for the show. So you can find way too much of me just by Googling my name. I'm hyperactive in the meme or bumper sticker creation. I do a whole lot of that on Facebook, like 10, 10 a day of really short things. You can find a whole repository of my stuff at jeremysherman.com. And I got close to a thousand articles at Psychology Today under the title Ambigamy, Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. I have three books up on Amazon. The latest is this thing called What's Up With Assholes, How to Spot and Stop Them Without Becoming One. I have I have one out with on origins of life work called Neither Ghost Nor Machine, The Emergence and Nature of Selves. And I have an old book up there called Negotiate With Yourself and Win. I also have a podcast called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, which is me debating myself. All right. I am so happy to get to know you. I hope we get a chance to talk again and we can schmooze and learn together. I've loved it. I'd like that. Yes. A pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. One more thing before you go. 
It is really important to have people like Jeremy Sherman who can take ideas and offer them in new ways to us and with different kinds of viewpoints and visions, ways to look at them, but also ways to explain them, words to ascribe to them. What I find interesting in the things that he says just as they tumble out one after the other is that each of the points, I think, that he makes could be its own book, its own lecture. But I want to just highlight a few of the points that he made. What I know is that I absolutely resonated with so many of the things that he said. First of all, the idea that shamelessness is no longer shameless. And when I think there, you know, there are so many people who will say certain things and you think that is really so transparent. They're really letting you know that they don't care, that they don't care about you. They don't care about society. They only care about kind of an external locus of control, getting caught, you know, something outside of yourself that dictates for you if you did something right or wrong. But you still don't necessarily learn from it. You don't think that you really did something wrong. You're just kind of more upset that you were caught. But also, I think having people in positions of authority who are very open about their lack of humility and are willing to say things that are absolutely untrue and are willing to say things that are dangerous, are willing to say things that really can be proven incorrect, but it doesn't matter then you do have this shamelessness not being shameful. And I think that when you have this, an interesting thing takes place. For some people, they feel very disappointed by people who are in the media, people who are in government, etc., who are shameless. But other people actually value it. They kind of like that they can see people getting a pass. They like that they can see people getting away with it. And I think for a lot of people, it gives them carte blanche to feel that they can do the same, sometimes with success, sometimes not, but still they give it a shot. There's the next point that Jeremy made, which I think ties in really well with the conflict in this, that conscience is extremely cumbersome. And it is. It's very hard to live your life with a conscience. Of course, my bias is that it's better, and I think it makes for a safer world. And also having a conscience, I think, brings the external locus of control to an internalized locus of control, which I think is much more adult, much more aware. But it also means that you walk around with a heaviness, with a sense of potential responsibility or guilt looking back, wondering what part you played in something that didn't work out well or what you should have done differently or could have done differently. A lot of people don't want that, but I still think it's important within reason. There are some people who were plagued by that. And I want to make sure to mention because of the population I often work with that there are people who have been told that if anything bad happens in the world or in their life or to their health or to their loved ones, it's their fault. So this idea of a conscience can actually be tapped into and preyed upon and manipulated to keep people kind of in their place, to keep people looking inward. And so 
if you're in an organization that tells you you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want and it doesn't have to be true at all, that's this sort of shamelessness, not being shameful. But the other extreme is also not healthy. When you are told that you need to keep somehow doing self-flagellation, that you need to keep repenting, that you need to keep proving yourself because you have clearly done something wrong that's allowed something bad to happen or it was all on you or you got sick because of you. If anything operates in the extreme, there is always the potential for it being problematic. Whenever there is the pendulum that goes from one end to the other, you're going to have problems. So what you want to be able to do is find your place in the middle. I get asked a lot from people who say, I don't know who I am and what I stand for. And I was raised to think a certain way and act a certain way, believe a certain way, feel entitled in a certain way, or feel so incredibly self-critical. And so the place in the middle is often where people are in this gray area where they might try to get away with things. They might kind of feel really proud of themselves and might be boastful. They might not pick up after themselves. They might litter. They might do things that they know not helping the planet. But they also know that if something goes wrong, it's not automatically their fault. And it's best actually to think it through, assess, figure out what happened, see if you played a part. Don't just assume it. And don't just assume it's your fault. And part of the reason I say that is not so much to just give you a sense of relief, but because then it lets the person who may have caused this, the perpetrator, get away with it because you're busy beating yourself up. And cult leaders like that because they like to get away with things. So they've trained people who are upset by what they do, or they train people who have bad things happen to them, beat themselves up. Same thing with manipulative partners, narcissistic partners. There's so much that we have to learn about ourselves and the part that we play in society. And I like Jeremy's vision where it is sort of really focusing in on the shell game, on the personalities, but also zooming out and seeing the big picture. Many people want epiphanies. Many people want to, as he says, leapfrog over normalcy. They want to be holy, super something. But that doesn't really last long. And if you have that kind of feeling of superiority and leapfrogging over normalcy, it's actually often, at the end of the day, a hollow feeling, a hollow victory. It's not so bad to be quote-unquote normal, whatever that means. That's where most people are. And it's really an okay place to be. And when people are in cults, often they feel that they've been elevated to think that they're above everyone else outside of it, but they still are often knocked down and made to feel less than the people in the group. So instead of being pushed in one direction and pulled in another direction, just settle in the middle and then see what kind of life you want to build for yourself and how you want to behave in the world around you. It's your choice. You get to make it for yourself. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. 
So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.